0: Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Chatterjee, joined once again by my co-host, Brianne. Brianne, you've had a busy week. How are things? Hey, Neil. Great to be
1: here with you. Things are great. You know, we've had a real busy week with Nord Stream, some developments with OPEC and all that. I'm sure we will get into that in just a little bit here. But we are thrilled to be here with Greg Bertelson.
0: Yeah, Greg Bertelson, the CEO of the Climate Leadership Council. Thank you for being our guest this week on the Plugged In podcast. Thanks, Neil.
2: Thanks, Brian. Pleasure to be with you.
0: Well, why don't we start, Greg, if you could just give our listeners a little bit of background on the Climate Leadership Council, on what the organization is, what its objective is, and your role there.
2: Sure. So Climate Leadership Council is a nonpartisan policy think tank organization. Our focus is on finding market-based climate solutions that strengthen the U.S. economy, lower global emissions, and support hardworking American families, work with a whole bunch of companies and other types of organizations to encourage Congress to promote these types of policies.
0: Well, speaking of Congress and and these types of policies, you know, there's been, you know, the conventional wisdom in energy circles is that climate change, carbon mitigation, it's become a progressive issue, an issue of the political left and that Republicans aren't really engaged when it comes to tackling climate change and carbon mitigation. But some big news that CLC made this week, you guys released some really interesting polling data regarding how these issues play amongst Republicans and particularly amongst Republicans. Republican primary voters. Care to detail some of what you found for our listeners?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Neil. That's right. So we actually did a two-part analysis that we released this week. The first was an assessment of how the House Republican conservative climate caucus members did in their primary elections. As you guys are aware, this Congress that we're in now, a new caucus was formed, led by Congressman John Curtis of Utah, populated by 60 or 70 Republicans exploring climate solutions that are consistent with conservative ideals and so we examined how those members did in their primary elections and sort of to get right to the heart of it they did very well they charted a 62 in 5 win-loss record across all primaries and of the members who won the average margin of victory was about 60 points so the guys who won which it was most of the members won by a very large margin. In fact, about half did better in 2022 or ran unelected compared to 2020. And then the, the last little detail I'd share on the, uh, on the election analysis was the five who were unsuccessful, it had nothing to do with climate. And we can talk more about that if it's of interest. But the, the takeaway from the first part of our analysis was the Republicans in the House who worked most on climate, this Congress, did very, very well in their primary re-elections. Then the second piece that we released, which Neil, you referenced already, was a poll of a thousand, what we call high propensity Republican voters. So this is a tighter filter than the traditional poll that's just polling Republican voters. These are the Republican voters most likely to vote in elections. And so if we're thinking about Republicans being concerned with where their base is, these are the voters that matter most. And some really interesting results from that poll. So first, 54% of these high propensity Republican voters said that they wanted their member of Congress, their Republican member of Congress to be working on climate solutions. So that may seem like an unimpressive number, but Again, we're talking about the voters most likely to vote in elections. More than half want their members to be working on climate issues. If you break that down by age, this is a sort of dynamic that we see with a lot of polls. Young Republican voters, 71% want to see their member working on climate. But we went a little bit deeper. We asked them, would you be interested or supportive of your member working in a caucus like the House Conservative Caucus? Three to one margin voters said they'd like their Republicans to be working with other Republicans on climate solutions. Now, just a couple other quick points, important to note, not all policies are created equal, right? We weren't gonna see these results if we asked voters, Republican voters, do you support the Green New Deal? But if we're asking them, are you supportive of the kinds of policies that Republicans who are stepping into climate are supporting, we see a tremendous amount of support. So stuff related to leveraging US carbon advantage, stuff related to out-competing China in the context of climate, all poll very,
0: very well. Yeah, let's unpack that a little bit, if we can. Uh, Brianna. I know this is something you've given a lot of thought to. You want to take it from here?
1: I actually was really curious about what we know just about the recent, obviously, climate change-driven events that have really exacerbated natural disasters, you know, in a lot of Republican-led states. Hurricane Ian, Hurricane Ida, Hurricane Harvey. How are these really major events that science is showing us that just keep getting worse and causing more destructive flooding? How are these changes voters' opinions on a shift to clean energy, to mitigate emissions. Are these driving policies at all now that voters are confronted firsthand with these events?
2: Sure. So we track very closely most climate polling. The trend that we see is that across the electorate, over time, concern around climate change is increasing desire for action on climate is increasing. And within each portion of the electorate, Democrats, independents, and Republicans, the trend line is increasing. Now, important to note, there still is a big gap in terms of where Republican voters prioritize climate and where Democratic voters prioritize climate. There There is unquestionably a big spread but what was really interesting about the analysis that we did is it demonstrated that this is very safe terrain for Republicans to be entering into. Or said differently, Republicans who are working on climate with other Republicans, Republicans who are working on climate today, the ones who are really leading, are in lockstep with where their base voters are. In fact, our analysis showed there's more terrain that they can cover. They can, they can step out further than they are and remain in safe territory. With their core base
0: voters. Greg, I want to unpack what we were talking about a moment ago when you said that, you know, all. Climate policies weren't equal and that Republican voters, you know, wouldn't be supportive of, say, the, the Green New Deal. But you spoke specifically about climate policies that, you know, might reward US manufacturers and penalize high carbon polluting imports from countries like Russia and China. That would strike me as an area you know, that would be ripe for Republican interests, conservative interests, and, and bipartisan cooperation. Can you kind of expand a little bit on what? policies might fit into that box?
2: Absolutely. Something we've done a lot at the council is examine the relative carbon efficiency of the United States economy compared to the rest of the world. So let me say that in a little bit clearer terms. We've looked at how US industry compares in terms of the amount of carbon emissions they produce to make the same product as their competitors globally. And the short summary is by and large across industries, we're among the cleanest, the most carbon efficient in the world. And that's fact that members on both sides of the aisle are increasingly understanding. And it's a space in which we're increasingly seeing Republicans gain interest and understanding. And so the next question becomes, Okay, this is a positive environmental story for our country to tell. We've got some right in feeling prideful in being among the most carbon efficient. We know we've got a lot more work to do, but Shouldn't we be leveraging that environmental advantage, that carbon advantage, for the benefit of our more efficient companies, for the benefit of our workers who work at those facilities? And for us, that leads us inevitably to a conversation about trade policy. So, ways in which we can structure trade policy to reward those companies and countries that are doing it the most efficiently with the fewest carbon emissions and establish a system of penalties for the highest emitting, least carbon efficient actors in the world. And it just so happens because of the investments we've made in the United States, because of the dynamics of our economy, because of the diversity of energy sources we have, we have a carbon advantage that exists today. And if we deployed something like a border carbon adjustment or a carbon import fee or a number of other policies that are in this arena, our domestic manufacturers, our domestic producers would win unquestionably. And that's a place where Republican voters, which is shown in the polling, are wildly supportive. And it's a space from my observation that Republicans are increasingly entering into.
0: Brianne, you've been doing a lot of reporting this week on on OPEC and the decision by the OPEC plus countries to scale back production. This would seem to fall in line, I think, with driving more support for what Greg is describing. You know, there's been so much talk about American energy independence and bringing the domestic supply chain home. To me, this seems like really common sense sort of pro-America policy, the idea that we would be benefiting American manufacturers, penalizing our adversaries, and kind of reducing some of the dependence that we've had. How does this square with some of the reporting you've been doing this week?
1: I think that is actually a great through line, Neil. We saw John Kirby telling reporters aboard Air Force One that this just shows OPEC's decision to cut oil production by 2 million barrels a day just goes to show the importance of not outsourcing or relying too heavily on foreign energy imports and increasing, you know, production at home. I think this is critically important. Right now, we are obviously in a in a very difficult position the two options biden is facing is in the in the near term is either to further tap the strategic petroleum reserves you know declaring an emergency which they alluded he might do that could be a national security risk for the us of course and then i guess you know the other alternative is turning to other countries such as venezuela you know that's been in the news and allowing for the possibility of easing sanctions in order to allow chevron to begin drilling and start up X exports back to Western markets.
0: I mean, Greg, I got to imagine, again, just purely on the politics of it, when compared with those choices. And one of the things the Biden administration has really wrestled with is how to deal with energy policy in the face of inflationary pressure and high costs, coupled with their environmental objectives. This seems to thread a lot of needles. and, And I have to imagine that what we're facing would only gain appeal. And You know, in conversations you're having with Republicans specifically about these policies, I mean, these aren't just, you know, moderate Republicans you're talking to. You're talking to some conservatives. I believe I've seen, you know, op-eds written by Senator Kramer of North Dakota and H.R. McMaster. I mean, real leaders of of conservative Republican energy policy and trade policy and foreign policy. Am I misreading this or is this not a really great opportunity?
2: Well, that's exactly right. We've talked about this so far, this Idea of some form of a climate and trade policy as a benefit to domestic industry, of which it certainly would be. But there's also an enormous geopolitical opportunity here. Neil, you mentioned an op-ed that H.R. McMaster and Senator Kevin Kramer of North Dakota wrote last December, essentially calling for the EU and the U.S. to band together and establish some form of a carbon import fee or border adjustment, on among other things energy. And at the time, this was before Russia invaded Ukraine. And their case was, if we did this, we would disadvantage Russian gas to the benefit of US LNG. And if we sort of pan back and think about other industries, and we look at the rest of the world, this is an opportunity, this is an enormous opportunity for cooperation with our allies. It just so happens that the countries that we would, countries and regions that we'd be most sort of aligned with on a geopolitical basis, are also similar to the United States, more carbon efficient than some of our adversaries. So if we were to band together with the EU, Japan, South Korea, Australia, and others, and ultimately form some kind of an alliance, or often referred to as a carbon club, well, that's enormous leverage that we can exert on bad actors in the. In the world. And also those bad actors are often the, the highest emitters. So there's these, you know, energy policy, geopolitical issues, climate, it's all intertwined. But there are opportunities for benefits in all three domains in this arena.
0: So I gotta ask the tough question. And again, I'm not a trade policy expert, but based on some of what I read, in order for us to enter into one of these agreements and have it be WTO compliant? Do we need to have a domestic price on carbon in order to be WTO compliant? Or is this something we could do without a domestic price on carbon?
2: Well, you wouldn't have to go too far on our website to see that I personally am supportive of a domestic carbon price. I'm supportive of a global carbon price. I believe ultimately We need to get there. But to answer your question, we don't need a carbon price to get started. We don't need a carbon price to do a border carbon adjustment. If I'm never able to convince certain Republican members on the merits of a carbon price, this is still terrain that they can work in and be supportive of and and make a difference. The WTO question is an untested one. WTO right now is thinking through how to better incorporate climate into their work right now is a body that is, I think, safe to say in transition. So the WTO issues and concerns are things that we need to be thinking about. But at this stage of the discussion, it should in no way be a barrier to us continuing to advance the dialogue.
0: One other thing, it's not necessarily a critique, if you will, a concern that I hear sometimes is that Russia and China can't be trusted and that they will cheat or not comply and that structure like this won't be effective because they just will ignore it. How do you answer that question about how do we make sure Russia and China don't cheat?
2: Yeah, it's pretty simple. We write the rules and then we enforce the rules. And so if we don't believe the information that any given country is sending with their products, we can send back their paperwork and ask them to redo it and allow us to verify it. And if they don't, they'll have to live with whatever the default charge is. And I would imagine the policymakers who developed this policy would structure it in such a way to create an incentive to either give us the real data and let it be verifiable or face something that would be less desirable from an economic standpoint.
1: I am super eager to know what are kind of the next steps for CLC? What are some of y'all's short-term goals that you're really hoping to advance and drive forward, you know, obviously in this era of when climate change is really front and center and uh, these efforts are really gaining steam in both parties on Capitol Hill?
2: Sure. Well, there's work being done right now. We're watching actually with a great deal of interest, something we haven't talked about yet, which is a negotiation between the Biden administration and the European Union around steel and aluminum. So last year, there was an announcement of an initiation of a new trade negotiation between the EU and the US to, for the first time ever, incorporate carbon intensity into a trade arrangement. And so that's something that we're paying a great deal of attention to. The the timeline is such that we're expecting to see, uh, or the, sort of the deadline for a deal is the end of next year. So that's something we're, we're really interested in. And as we've been watching with interest, there's sort of a small core group of senators on on the Hill who are starting to think more carefully about what, what a policy might look like. We've sort of listened with interest. Folks like Senator Cassidy talk about an interest in developing some form of a border carbon adjustment bill on a bipartisan basis. And so that's something that we're, we're really tuned into. And then Of course, long term as an organization, we do feel like it's important to eventually get to a point where we've got a price setting a signal throughout the economy. And so, you know, as we look ahead and think about what we're ultimately going to need, that's another policy that we're certainly continuing to work on.
0: How, Greg, do you think the Inflation Reduction Act will play into that? You know, pretty substantial investment by Congress, all carrots, no sticks to sort of incentivize the clean energy transition. How do, how do you see the IRA impact some of the policy objectives CLC hopes to focus on in the next couple of years?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's going to have an impact on everything moving forward in, in the climate policy space, you know, sort of whether you supported it or opposed it, like parts of it, disliked others, hard to... Argue with the significance of the bill, $370 billion, largest climate bill in US history. So, a couple of thoughts on the border carbon adjustment side of things, on the climate and tri- trade side of things, we are on the verge of asking the American taxpayer or having the American taxpayer make an enormous investment in clean energy. Well, a border adjustment would sure be a good way to protect that investment to ensure that we are leveraging it to the maximum extent possible for the benefit. Of our workers for the benefit of our industries, but also for the benefit of the global climate. So I think it actually only increases the logic and case for some form of a border adjustment. You know, we've we've watched with interest and reviewed with interest the modeling projections about the emission reductions. And I mean, the one thing we can all say with confidence is that models are imperfect. And whether you think the bill is going to overperform or underperform, I think we all agree that more is going to be needed. And so As we look ahead, as we think about what's going to be needed down the road, I remain confident that at the end of the day, we're going to need some form of a market-based policy some form of a price signal, really at the global level, ultimately, in order to accomplish our goals of decarbonizing the global economy. And just the final thing I note, which I find interesting to think about is, I mean, there were some really interesting provisions within the IRA around domestic sourcing requirements and sourcing from from allies. And I think that probably makes meeting the high end of the emission uh, projections more difficult. But on the other hand, I think it may actually increase the size of the climate constituency in the United States. In the days following the bill, we've seen big investments in battery manufacturing plants, automobile, electric uh, manufacturing. Now, many of these announcements were probably in the queue anyway, but the fact is because of the way this bill is written, there is a greater incentive for a lot of the manufacturing to be domestically sourced. And we're looking at places like Ohio I think there was a, a battery plant or an electric manufacturing plant, Neil, in, uh, in Kentucky that was recently announced by Ford. And so we just, we start to see, I can start to see sort of an expansion of parts of the country that just have a natural alignment to greater climate ambition moving forward, because it'll be in the interest of the industries that are increasingly occupied in those states. It'll be interest, the interest of the workers that are working at those facilities
1: how quickly can these battery factories and all these other manufacturing announcements that have been made how quickly can these actually be brought online and will this be fast enough to you know meet these meet these standards that were rolled out in the inflation reduction act because that's been just something that in the back of my mind as i've been reporting out all this the last couple months
2: well i think a lot of these or at least some of these facilities are in construction so i think there will be some that are coming online in the coming years i think that, i imagine they'll meet their timelines related, Brianne, I mean, the thing that I'm really interested in, something that veers into Neil's area of expertise, is whether we can get the transmission built. So even conservative estimates about what we would need to get to zero carbon in the electricity sector by mid-century says we need something like two or three times the high voltage transmission lines built in the country. And we know right now, we're not that good at permitting and building high high voltage transmission. And of course, that then gets to the policy debate that's before us today. So maybe I'll switch hats and make Neil give us a prediction on whether Mansions permitting reform is going to pass before the end of the year.
0: Yeah, look, we've discussed it on earlier episodes of the Plugged In podcast, some of the challenges here. You know, Republicans think the legislation doesn't go far enough. Democrats have been reluctant to kind of touch on NEPA, which makes compromise difficult. But, you know, that's what's frustrating. I think we're at a point in time where it does take too long to build things in this country. We do need gas infrastructure in the short term to maintain reliability. And we need to build this transmission out to bring clean energy to the market to both maintain reliability and affordability and achieve our decarbonization goals. And so, you know, Greg, I'm I'm am I'm with you. I'm a big proponent of kind of market driven policies. I think we've had too many politicians kind of engaging in this debate and trying to favor preferred resources and and that just leads to quite frankly a lot of unnecessary complexity and threats to reliability and so when you have you know clean transparent market-based policies the efficiency of a clear price signal you get better decisions and it enables the build out of the types of things that we need and so a lot more work to be done but i think there's uh, there's huge opportunities here as we come to the to the close of the podcast, Greg, I just want to get a sense. You've been in this space for a long time. I imagine when you started, you know, kind of talking to conservatives and Republicans about carbon mitigation was probably a lonely conversation. It's been remarkable to me how much that has shifted over the years, particularly in looking at some of your polling data amongst young people, amongst young conservatives who are now really clamoring for smart climate action, for market-based climate action. Are you glass half empty or glass half full about the future of engagement? young conservatives in particular on climate action?
2: I'm glass all the way full on young conservatives in in, in climate action. The polling shows it, but our work out in the field, our, our work out in states shows that there's a tremendous amount of energy among conservative young Republican voters for climate action. And leadership is seeing this. Members are seeing this. They get it. And this is in part what's driving Republicans increasingly to this conversation. So I'm, I'm very optimistic that this is a trend and that trend will continue.
0: Well, Greg, thank you for joining us again this week on the Plugged In Podcast. Listeners of the podcast know we always like to close with something light and interesting about our guests, not necessarily tied to any portion of the substantive conversation. So to, to close us out this week, Greg, uh, tell us something light and interesting about Greg Bertels. No pressure.
2: Well, Neil, as you know, I'm a, I'm a big tennis fanatic. So I, I grew up playing tennis in the juniors in which I was fairly mediocre and I played a little bit of college tennis where I was equally mediocre. And the great thing about being a mediocre junior player and a mediocre college player is that when you're a middle-aged player, you have the delusion that you're still getting better. So I get out there a couple of times a week uh, under the delusion that my best days on the tennis court are still ahead. And we're to get Brianne out there too as soon as she gets her shoulder rehabbed.
1: Once I get this sling off, you know, after one month of tennis, it's it's pretty on brand for me. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I was I was one month into my promising tennis career before I injured a tendon. So one of these days we'll have to we'll have to go out there and play though. Neil, are you into tennis?
0: I love tennis. Yeah, I played as a kid. Was a little bit uh, more mediocre than than Greg, but still loved the sport. I've been particularly touched the past couple of weeks with sort of the focus on tennis with Roger Federer's retirement announcement. And I guess you know uh, Greg and Brian both. Well, I got you. The big three. Rank them for me. One, two, three. In in the history books. Federer, Nadal, Djokovic. Go, Greg.
2: I can't do it. Three way tie, Neil. Three way tie. <laughs> Fed's number one in my heart. Nadal got the most majors, and Djokovic has probably played at the highest level at his peak. So, how's that? I think Brienne
1: uh, had the best answer. I just shouted out Serena Williams because I, I <laughs> won't lie to you; I didn't recognize any of those names. Listeners of the podcast you may also recall. I know I know a very limited amount about actual sports, so the Williams sisters, <laughs> but also what Greg
0: said. Well, really appreciate you joining another great episode of the podcast. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in once again and uh, look forward to more Plugged In next week.
1: Thanks so much again for listening to season three of the Plugged In podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern time. You can keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and by subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter written by me, Brianne Deppish, and my co-author, Jeremy Beeman.